listening to the Colorado Springs Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Envision Advisors at Your Castle Real Estate. Hey everyone, Chris Lopez here, and welcome back to another episode in the Colorado Springs Real Estate Investing Podcast. So today, Jenny's put together a really cool presentation on metrics paralysis, because we've seen a lot of people analyze themselves out of a really good investment. And Jenny and I I have both been on different sides of the coin on this, so this will be a great presentation. So Jenny, how are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing great this morning. This is a presentation I know you spent uh, quite a bit of time working on. You shared the draft with me, and I'm I'm really excited to, to see it. So what exactly is it about? So I just wanted to kind of do um, a bit of an introspective look and then also more of an observational um, based on feedback that I'm getting from our current buyers, just kind of hangups that people are concerned about and just really walking through why looking at one specific metric or one specific way of analyzing a property isn't necessarily the best way to look at a potential investment property and just kind of showing how uh, looking at things from a different angle will probably change someone's point of view as to whether or not they would like to purchase the property or not. Sounds good. So where do you start with this? Because this is, you know, there's always that fine balance of, you know, making decision and acting fast versus analyzing things to to understand everything. And there's a happy medium between the two because I've seen people act too fast to make some bad decisions. And I've seen a lot of people spend way too long analyzing and never pulling the trigger. So I'm guessing you'll walk us through and help us find that happy medium. Yeah. And I mean, like you just said, there is completely subjective. There's no correct way of going about doing something, but hopefully just having more tools at your disposal uh, will help people kind of make that decision a little bit easier. Um, at least that's my, my hope. Um, so something that we typically hear a lot from our investors are uh, basing their decision on cap rates and purchase price. So I'm going to go into a couple of examples of looking at those parameters at a little bit of different angles. Um, and then just really just focusing on the hangups that we as investors face and just why narrowly focusing on a singular metric could end up really honestly costing that investor thousands of dollars in opportunity costs. So going into cap rate, I'm sure you get this a lot, Chris, the, a common quote that we get, I don't want this property if it's not at least a six cap. I've never heard that, Jenny. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so yeah, I, I get that all the time. And um, you know, I, I think that people are kind of short-sighting themselves by only looking at this. And I'm just going to kind of go into why, why I feel that way. Um, so if we're using debt, how do, we, how do we calculate cap rate? It's purchase price divided by net operating income. Yep. And so net operating income and therefore the cap rate does not account for mortgage interest costs. So in other words, if we have two identical assets that have the same purchase price and net operating income, asset number one has a mortgage interest rate of 3% and asset number two has a mortgage rate of 5%, 
they have the same exact cap rate. So I think that's something that's really important to kind of hone in um, as we go go through with this. Um, and then just, I'm sure everyone has noticed lately that interest rates have been steadily decreasing over the past year. And the prices of assets have been steadily increasing over the past year. So what does that do to the cap rate? It compresses it. And I mean, what we're seeing is historically, is what we see historically is interest rates drop that money gets funneled into assets. So stock markets, real estate are two prime asset class examples. And we all know the stock market is going up. We all know real estate prices are going up because it's very cheap money right now. It's cheap debt, I should say. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's just really important to um, highlight because the net operating income, if it's not increasing at the same rate, like you said, the cap rate's going to compress but that cap rate is only capturing one part of that change, the increased price of the asset. It's not considering the decreased interest rates impact. So I just kind of wanted to show a little bit of an example over the past couple of years of Colorado Springs median and average uh, price point. Um, for those of you that aren't looking at the YouTube uh, video of this, we're starting at November, 2018, the median price point is 303,000. November of 2020 is 380,000. That's a huge jump in just two years. And then if we look at interest rates, uh, that it has the absolute inverse shape of the uh, median price point that we saw as, as time progresses. So, you know, we're starting in uh, the end of November of 2018, uh, about four and three quarters percent. And then we're ending at about two and three quarters percent um, end of November of last year. And to help the listeners visualize this, because this is, you know, the things where these couple charts speak a thousand words in the, mm -hmm. in the previous slide of showing home prices. If you look at the graph lower left, that's where the prices start, which is, you know, November 18 at the lower price point, And then they're going up. Um, you know, then as, it, as you go up, it's going to the upper right of the graph. When you go to the interest rates, interest rates start in the upper left and they're going uh, right and then down. So if you put the two over, they make a, a really funky X, you know, if you overlay <laughs> the two of them. But it's exactly, it's a great visualization of what you've been talking about last minute, Jenny, of, hey, as interest rates drop, it generally pushes prices up. Exactly. So I wanted to to go into what we just mentioned, the cap rate. Um, but I thought that a really good example of doing this, and I, I'm very, I'm very uh, happily convenienced of the fact that I have two identical properties that I refinance almost exactly one year apart from each other. And as I mentioned, they're identical properties. They're literally across the street from each other. There's nothing different between the two of them. Um, so I wanted to be able to just describe the difference between the, the properties in terms of uh, the numbers behind them, and then take a look at cap rate comparisons. Um, so for property number one, we refinanced it end of September of 2019. And at that time, it appraised at 183000 My interest rate was 4.375%. And the rent price as of the refi date was $1,200 a month. Then if we go over to property number two, the refinance date was October 1 of 2020. 
appraised value at the refi date was 228,000. Interest rate was 3.75% and the rent price at the refi date was 1300. So just, you know, for this analysis, let's pretend that we bought each property at the respective stated dates for the price listed. Um, just pretending that we bought it uh, in fall of 2019, fall of 2020 for the appraised value, just for the sake of example. Um, and all other net operating income factors remain constant except for the purchase price and rent price with the purchase price 25% higher than um, increasing at a higher rate than the rent price only increased by 8% between the two years. So I think that's also important to highlight. Um, so this is a really good comparison with both real interest rates and real appraised values that we can truly compare cap rate and interest rate effects on um, from a time, a time standpoint. So if we uh, look at property number one, putting it into Joe Massey's spreadsheet, uh, and you guys have seen this a million times before, so I'll go through this really quickly. Uh, purchase price, 183000 Mortgage interest rate, 4.375%. $1,200 a month in rent. Uh, property taxes, insurance, property management, reserves, those are all going to be the same. So we're going to say annual cash flow before taxes, $2,545. With a cash on cash rate of return, 6.7% and a cap rate of 6.2%. So if we go over to property number two, just plugging in those different factors that we had mentioned previously, purchase price of 228000 mortgage interest rate of 3.75%, and then a monthly rental income of $1,300, keeping all other NOI factors the same, we're looking at a cash flow before taxes of $2,247, cash on cash rate of return, 4.8%, cap rate, 5.4%. So just to kind of summarize the two comparisons, uh, if we plug in all the figures that we, that we mentioned before, if we're only looking at cap rate, property number one has a cap rate of 6.2% and property number two has a cap rate of 5.4%. So I'm gonna buy property one. Yeah, property two looks awful in comparison to property one looking at it this way, right? Yeah, I mean, you're yeah. talking what, seven tenths of a cap rate lower. Yeah, exactly. But this is this is what uh, you know. I, I'd like to highlight is looking at it from a whole picture perspective. So um, I have a big chart here. So I'll I'll try to do my best to keep everyone's interest as I read through some of the numbers. Um, but just taking a look at the return on investment quadrant that you see in uh, Joe's spreadsheet pretty frequently, considering the factors of appreciation cash flow, debt pay down, and depreciation between property number one and property number two. Um, and then I also have the down payment amounts listed on top as well. So um, I think that it'd probably be best if I just kind of speak to it uh, you know, from a high level. And then if you're interested in looking at the specific numbers, uh, you can definitely look in the show notes. Um, so even if we took out the appreciation factor, and only looked at certain or more certain returns, such as cash flow, debt paydown, and depreciation. It's actually a difference of $1,000 in return favoring property number two's numbers. 
Um, and the only decreased return on investment factor is cash flow, but at a very marginal amount, it's $300 a year, less than $300 a year. Um, and the debt pay down is higher because the interest rate is lower. So you have more going towards the principal each month. And then the depreciation is higher because the asset purchase price is higher. So it's kind of fascinating to see, see it when you look at it from a whole perspective like that. So I got, I got a couple questions on here, Jenny, and this is a mm-hmm. really good chart. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take it all in while, while we're talking here. So my first question is, you said there's a difference about $1,000 favoring property number two, which is a more expensive one, right? Mm-hmm. In the lower right of your chart, you have difference of property one versus property two. About you have thirty two forty in there. Yeah. Uh, shouldn't those be the same? Because that's the <laughs> one thing that caught my eye. Yeah. So that's taking out appreciation. So if we put in appreciation, it's actually two thousand two hundred fifty dollars better in property two's favor because mm. we're appreciating at the same, you know, we're applying the same rate of appreciation between the two properties, um, but a higher price asset. So dollar for dollar, that one's going to be higher. Um, but I thought that, uh, you know, for people who might want to poke some holes in this argument, okay, appreciation's not guaranteed. Fine. Well, let's just go to truly what is actually happening. If you're renting out this property, cash flow, debt pay down depreciation. I think that those can be considered fairly certain, uh, oh, well, cash flow being the fairly certain debt pay down depreciation being absolutely certain, um, factors of return. Okay. That makes sense. I did not mm-hmm. realize that had, uh, was not counting for appreciation. I see in your notes now, and I'm sure you set up, but I think I was trying <laughs> to listen and read at the same time. So my second question on here is what do you say to the fact, because the other difference between these two properties is property one was at 1200 monthly mm-hmm. rent property two is that $13 a month in rent? So is that $100 a month in rent? The reason why cash flow is not that different? Um, you know, that's a good question. I'm, I don't really think so necessarily because your mortgage payment, let's compare our actual dollar mortgage payment. So for property number one, um, we're looking at $731 a month and property number two, it's $144 a month. But just keeping in mind that more is going towards the debt pay down aspect of it due to the lower interest rate. Okay. And is it a a fair assumption then since you since you know with this example, you bought property two a year before, that when it comes time to buy property two, you've raised the rents on property one from twelve to thirteen hundred or will be, mm-hmm. you know, soon about the same time as the tenant turns over? Yeah, but I think for the purposes of um showing the example, I was aiming to highlight the net operating income was not increasing at the same rate that the asset value was. Mm, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that since they're identical assets that you can assume, um, you know, for your year two performance of property number one, that the, the rent rate would increase. Okay. So I got more questions, but I'll hold off on those because I don't know what slides you have next. <laughs> Okay. All right. Um, so the other thing that I see, um, people getting hung up on and, uh, I'm guilty of the same is purchase price. And I think that is probably important to kind of go back and look at what exactly is purchase price or what is list price. List price 
is a suggested price at the direction of the seller, which is usually supported by comparative sales that a real estate agent will present to the seller. So I think that's kind of important is that there's no, uh, you know, machine that you put in the, the address of your property and it spits out an absolute number at you. It's, it's taking a lot of factors and it's still a fairly subjective opinion of price based on what people have paid for a similar asset in the past. So I think just kind of keeping that in mind as, as we go forward is important. Um, and I really do think that there's a fine line between, between paying too much for a home and having a case of FOBO. Have you ever heard of FOBO? Oh yeah. <laughs> so for, for those of you who Wait, don't know FOBO, FOBO, no, I've heard of FOMO. FOMO. What is yes. FOBO? So no, I'm sorry, I've heard of FOMO. No, yeah. I've not so heard of this. this this is a, a really cool concept. FOBO is fear of better options. So it's a paralyzing uh, state for people to commit to something out of the fear that it's not the absolutely perfect option and that there is some nebulous other option that is better out there somewhere. Interesting. I've never thought of in that context. I was on FOMO, which is the fear of missing out, which is so mm-hmm. common in our society today. So FOBO. Okay. So, okay. Explain FOBO again. Cause this, <laughs> so this fe- is, this is brand new to me. Yeah. Fear of better options. So you don't want to commit to something because you think that there's a better option out there somewhere. Mm, okay. So that's interesting. Cause I remember when I first, I mean, this is almost 20 years ago now when I first got into like entrepreneurship and kind of started learning investing, but more just the business side I would meet so many people when I was in various, you know, know, masterminds and courses and classes and all the typical stuff people do as they get into entrepreneurship where, you know, as people know, I am not a perfectionist, but I'd see so many people and they would spend months creating uh, the perfect business plan to have everything figured out and account for every variable. And I was, I was like, Hey, I got this idea I'm going with. And that taught me that, you know, taking action and not waiting around for basically something better or something perfect, uh, you know, taking action with something that was pretty good versus waiting for something perfect, the taking action pretty good won the vast majority of time than finding something perfect or waiting for, you know, all the uh, stars to align, which I exactly. think is pretty similar to to this FOBO term here. Yep, that's exactly, that's exactly it in, oh. in, the, in that context. Ooh, I learned something new, Jenny. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So uh, one of the you know hangups that we get from, from investors is, I don't want to pay anything above list price. So this is kind of all leading into uh, kind of looking at it again from a different angle. And let's um, before you go into this example, because this yeah. is, I mean, the, the list price, who sets that, Jenny? Well, the seller ultimately sets it, but it's, Typically, at you know, they consult with their listing agent, who then pulls data from comparative sales that have happened previously. So it's kind of a trickle down effect, and then that's ultimately uh, who sets the price is the seller. And it's an arbitrary number. Mm-hmm. It's a yep. number that you know one person or a couple people you know, made their best guess on. And I'll say sellers, you know, more often than not, they do take their agent's advice. Other times like, nope, I want to sell it for this. This is how much it's worth. Yep. And even though the data is like, hey, the, no comps, no data supports this, but they have in their mind that, hey, this is the price for the property. 
Exactly. It's an arbitrary and, number, which is really important <laughs> for people to understand. Yeah. But I think it's, I'm sure there's some psychology term for it, but you know, once people see that number, people get really fixated on that list price. Um, whether or not it's truly worth that more or less, you know, however, which way you want to do it. But it's kind of like, you know, when you go to JC pennies and you see that something was marked down 50%, but you know, they are never going to sell it for what the, what the MSRP was like, I don't know. It's just something in your brain clicks that it, you're not getting a deal or you are getting a deal when you see something like a price tag like that. Um, so just kind of going into that, um, I wanted to give an example of a situation where I was the, uh, buyer's agent on a duplex and they bought the property for 319,000. And then I got word that the same seller had another duplex, actually a couple duplexes, um, down the street that he wanted to sell also. So I went ahead and I offered 319,000 cause that was the list price for that other duplex. Right. Well, the seller, I guess, taking into account that he had already sold that previous duplex, um, he countered at 329,000. So I actually didn't hesitate. I immediately accepted that offer at that point, even though it was $10,000 more than what I went into my original offer thinking we'd be able to secure it at. Now, why, why did you take that and why did you not hesitate? <laughs> so I think kind of, again, backing up and taking a look at the whole picture, I already knew that the $319,000 price was an excellent deal. So backing into it, $10,000 more over a 30-year note, that's a drop in the bucket. If, if we're going from a above excellent deal to like an excellent deal, um, that was kind of how my brain worked on that. Um, and then also taking into account that there's only two other duplexes in the Colorado Springs um, MLS at the time. One was listed at $900,000. Two duplexes <laughs> was all on the market? Yep, it was Jeez. two duplexes. So my thought was, well, if this thing hits the market, the demand is going to drive what this way above three twenty nine, right? Uh, because I've already decided it's a good it's a good property, it's a good performing property, and just simple supply and demand. I think everyone's going to glom onto that. So that was just kind of in the back of my mind for that. Um, but at its surface, ten thousand dollars does seem like a lot of money. But for a long-term investment, constant cash flow, debt paydown, appreciation, in my opinion, that's going to outweigh any sort of additional upfront costs, which if you talk to me five years from now, I don't think I'm even going to notice that I paid $10,000 more than what I had thought I was going to pay on, on this property. Well, plus the thing is too, is you're not, you're not writing a check for an extra $10,000 at closing. Mm -hmm. Did you do yeah. a duplex to what, 25% down payment? Yep. So it's just a, a $2,500 cost. Yep. So it's an extra $2,500, which is a lot different than 10,000. I mean, you, we all want to write, you know, the smallest checks possible of our checking accounts. Mm -hmm. um, but we see those numbers, we often get sticker shock. It doesn't mean, you know, you did a great job of talking about the long term, but also look at the upfront. It usually doesn't make a huge difference in the upfront 
and upfront total investment. Exactly. And kind of the way I see this is that I really honestly could have succumbed to FOBO in this instant by turning it down or, you know, losing the deal, trying to negotiate pennies here and there. Um, but by waiting around for an even better deal, I think that I would have missed an opportunity to buy a cash flowing asset by not just accepting essentially a guaranteed offer because, you know, I was the only one that was presented with a counter at that point. And what was the approximate cap rate on this duplex? Good question. Oh, so, <laughs> all right, next slide, huh? Yeah, so I, I went ahead and again used Joe Massey's spreadsheet, um, and I wanted to compare the original offer price uh, against the accepted price. So just kind of running through this real quick: purchase price of three hundred nineteen thousand, three point five percent interest rate. I think that each unit I can rent out for about $1,100 each side. Um, everyone has separate utilities with the exception of water, but uh, I, I'm just going to do a, a build back. So for the purpose of this example, we'll just assume no utilities mm -hmm. um, expense. Then I have property management, 8% monthly maintenance reserves, uh, real estate taxes, insurance. So we're coming to annual cash flow before taxes of $5,664 a year, cash on cash return of 6.4% and a cap rate of 5.8%. So that's pretty good, right? Yeah. I mean, I would absolutely buy it. So, yeah. so 5.8 cap, 6.4 cash on cash. Yep. For the original 319000 So with the $10,000 counter, just popping in the 329000 into the purchase price, everything else staying the same. We're looking at $5,260 in annual cash flow before taxes, 5.8% cash on cash return, and a 5.6% cap rate. And what's the difference in total cash flow? About $400 a year? Yeah, about $400 <laughs> a year, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, so you went from, uh, what, $5,600 approximately for the $319 and $5,200 for the $329, which that's not much money. Yeah. So it's a, it's a 404 difference, $404 a year difference in yearly cash flow or $33 a month. <laughs> so to me, that is, you know, it, that's not a big deal. Um, and then also kind of going back to the previous example that we had, we actually have $318 more in the first year return on investment with the countered price. Um, again, probably because we're pushing up appreciation and depreciation factors on that due to the higher asset value. And then as we talked about $2,500 more in initial cash down. So we're talking about the difference between about 80,000 and a little, little over $82,000 in, in initial cash down. So the way I see this, the really the only substantial difference that I can see today is that extra $2,500 cash down. But I also see it as that's going to be replenished in about six months of cash flow. Mm, that's an interesting way to look at it. I've never, mm -hmm. I've never looked at it that way. So you're yeah. saying the total cash flow from the property, you'll pay, you'll get that $2,500 back in the first six months. Correct. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. So, so then the next step, the next question I ask myself is, will I find a better deal than this in six months? If it's going to take me six months to recoup that you know, the extra $2,500, I, 
Will I find a better deal in six months? How much will prices increase in the next six months? Um, and just taking this one as an example, if we do an assumed 5% yearly appreciation rate, which is lower than what we've actually been seeing, prices should increase or yeah, prices should appreciate on the asset over $8,000 in the next six months anyways. <laughs> so even if I just waited, the, the cost would go up anyways. Um, yeah. So that's another way of looking at it. So go, cause I, I ask myself these questions a lot too. So go back to that first question. Will I find a better yeah. deal in the next six months? Mm-hmm. I think this is something that I've seen a lot of investors. They don't put the, the current property in context with other properties, at least initially a lot of times. And I mean, since there are two duplexes on the market when you bought this, and of course, you know, the market, you know, very, very well down there. What percent chance do you give yourself of finding a better deal of finding that 6% cap rate versus whatever this was a five, six or five, seven cap rate? Like, Will you like find 1%. that in six months? Sorry, how much? I probably, I would say, I don't know, one to 5%. Yeah. So very, very, very low. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I look at too is not just the cap rate. This is something I think a lot of people overlook. It's the amount of time and mental energy to go mm-hmm. out there and find a quote unquote better deal. Because I yeah. look at it this way, like, you know, you talked about earlier that you know, how you pay back the extra $2,500 in down payment for the next first six months of cash flow. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, I know the market in context. This is a pretty good deal. And there's always something better out there. There's always something worse out there. There's, there's always those options out there. But I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, am I happy with it? So I can go out there and find a better deal that's maybe three tenths of cap right or maybe hits this cash flow number I want. Is this worth the extra 50 hours of time it's going to take me and the mental energy? And then when I compare that to the cash flow, which let's just say $400 a year in cash flow, an extra $400 a year in cash flow is not worth an extra 50 hours of my time this year. I mean, exactly. there's there, and yeah. I look at it more from that way. Cause I'm just mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay, I could go out there and do this, but that 50 hours, that's, you know, time from everything else away. Plus it's that mental, uh, like that, that, you know, takes up that mental space. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I'm already, you know, I can only handle so many things in my mind at once. And this, I'm like, yeah, that's not, or a few extra dollars is not worth the time and mental space to me. That's the, exactly. one of the big things I look at. And I don't know about you, but you know, if I'm in a bidding war with someone that just absolutely drains me. Um, and the, the privilege of not having to be in a bidding war with somebody that is worth something that, I, you know, I don't know what dollar amount, but, uh, that's definitely worth something to me. Well, it's apparently worth at least $10,000 to you. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was just kind of, uh, you know, I consider those FOBO questions for, for people to ask themselves. Um, and then just, you know, key observations. Would you turn down, would you turn down $438 a month in cash flow if you're hoping for $472 a month in exchange for $2,500? Are you willing to miss out on 5% appreciation while you wait to find a better deal? Um, you know, there's no right answer to those questions. Uh, it's something that the individual will have to, to look at. But, you know, for me, uh, the answer was no. Uh, I'm the same answer. Yeah. So, yeah, I just kind of wanted to, to really look at that one, um, the, the purchase price situation. I have fallen victim to FOBO on that. Uh, over the years to the point where now, uh, you know, I'm on the opposite side where I'm, I'm more quick to just be like, yeah, that's fine. Whereas 
Um, you know, I was looking, I was looking back at a deal I passed up cause I couldn't come to an agreement with the seller. It was like three or four years ago over something silly, like $5,000. Um, I think it was like, I wanted 325 and they wanted, or excuse me, 125 and they wanted 130 and now the property's worth 250. So <laughs> that was, you know, that's just a very uh, typical example of, of when I look back at the deals I passed up on over a couple thousand dollars here and there, um, how much I've missed out on. So it's just, you know, it's a good kick in the pants uh, when you look at it that way, I think. Yeah, it is. And, and this uh, made me think of something, kind of going back to the very first property I ever bought. And this was, you know, when I lived in Nevada at the time before I was in the real estate, you know, really before anything, I was still doing a little bit of day trading in my previous business, but I, I knew real estate had dropped so much and I was like, I'll just, I'll, I'll go out there and buy a place. So what had happened was one of my friends, like family friends, uh, bought a place in Reno for like $76,000 or $77,000 in a condo complex. And my friend described him as the most anal guy in the world who researched every single condo complex in, in Reno, um, checked them all out and said, Hey, this is the one I'm going to buy it. So I took it like, Hey, great. If someone said all that due diligence, cool. That, that goes a long way for me. So I just went to the same property in that same complex, looked like two condos in there, drove up there for the afternoon, spent two hours, put an offer on the place. And you got two stories out of here. So put an offer in the place, Got it accepted, and then like a week or two later, whatever iPhone came out, and I was debating on whether I should buy the new iPhone. I spent more time researching the latest iPhone than I did buying that first real estate property, <laughs> which in some sense is kind of you know it can go either way. Obviously that that worked out well for me, but I was just like I kind of I'm a very big picture person. I'm like okay, uh, you know my friend who I completely trust, and he completely trusts this person. Great, that takes care of a lot of that like due diligence and research for me because I don't I didn't know what I was doing back then. And then, you know, at the at the high of the market, this condo sold for like two twenty or two ten. I got it for sixty seven or sixty eight thousand dollars. So I was like, all right, well, I don't think it's gonna go much lower. If it does, like it's not gonna go to zero, so I should be good. And I was like, all right, I'm good with those numbers. Like that was kind of like my my big picture overview. And I was like, hey, my mortgage on here is so cheap. It's cheaper than the rent I'm paying right now. Like, how do I lose in here? And that was my decision. The second thing, because my friend who told me about this. And this was a foreclosure from I think Fannie Mae that we that I bought it from. I think the list price was I don't know, say sixty eight thousand dollars, you know. And he was helping me because he'd bought real estate before, and he said, hey, you know, you got you got to go below list price. And I was like, okay, so I put an offer in like sixty six or something, so like two thousand dollars less than list price. And I think they came back and countered at sixty seven thousand um, dollars. And he was like, no, out of principle, don't take that deal. You got to get what you want. And I was just like. And I kind of did the same analysis to that. I go, I go, okay, for a while I thought about it. I was like, it just seems stupid to me. Like, I go, it's a thousand dollars. Like, I don't give a crap about a thousand dollars. And I'm much more of like a pragmatic person than principal person in those situations. Like, hey, pragmatically speaking, like, it does not freaking matter. Um, and so, you know, I've been very fortunate where, and this has worked well for me in some situations and not well in other situations, but really focus on the on the big picture. Because my general attitude is, hey, if you can buy a property that's in relatively a good deal in the current market condition, and you are set up to make sure you don't lose it over the next 10 years, you know, from like no cash reserves or nothing stupid, like you have a really high probability of winning. 
And I'd rather take that bet than trying to eke out a difference because I sold that condo a couple of years ago for like two hundred twenty-nine thousand dollars. At that point, I didn't care if I bought for sixty-seven thousand or sixty-eight thousand dollars. It doesn't right. make a difference. And same thing in the Springs market, the Denver market. Like nothing is showing that prices are going to drop anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think that's that's an awesome story to kind of highlight <laughs> the the long term. You know, moving your your scope out uh, long term and, and the impacts for that. I feel like my investing personally, I feel like I've been able to kind of take it to the next level, grow our net worth via rental property investing by taking a long-term approach to things as opposed to when I first started, I was, my fixation was on cash on cash return. Mm. You know, if it didn't mean a certain cash on cash return, I wasn't even going to look at it. Whereas if I had bought every single one of those properties that was like 0.1%, lower than I wanted it to be. I mean, yeah, they would have all doubled in value at this point. So uh, I think kind of taking a step back and just looking at it long-term is this, you know, 50 cents a month really going to (laughs) matter and just kind of looking at it that way. um, I think that's the way, like you said, to preserve your brain cells and to, to be a really good investor. Let me ask you this too, Jenny, just about your, a self-aware question about yourself. Because mm-hmm. I've noticed the trend that myself and I've just noticed from a lot of you know more experienced investors than myself is that it seems like the more experienced people are and the more savvy they are, they usually have a lot simpler metrics and make quicker decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've seen my progress grow. And how would you say your your investing arc over the last what five or eight years? Like how has that gone for you from like analysis to the you know with the keep it simple stupid on the other end of the spectrum? Oh, exactly. It's exactly that. Um, We look at things from a couple different ways. I know that we talked about um, what I look for investing, you know, my three rules, basically. Um, Can I drop the, the, the rent rate and still pay all my expenses? Do I have cash in reserves? Do I have equity? Yep. Okay, then it's good to go. Um, You know, I can float myself if anything were to happen, but yeah, I, I just, I don't um, hyper-focus on things anymore. And it's just kind of interesting how, I guess, being exposed to property after property after property, I think that probably helps too. Yeah, I think it comes through just a lot of like, you know, education and taking the mm-hmm. reps of analyzing properties. Because I remember, you know, years ago when I got into, you know, I analyzed hundreds of properties and I realized, okay, they're all they're all about the same. So mm-hmm. not much is going to change at this point. I think that comes down to education and just taking the reps on looking at housing properties, make sure you realize, hey, I I can't change this stuff. The market's not going to change it, so I don't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And for me, that wasn't a conscious decision. I think it just happened subconsciously, but I think that's what happens with a lot of people as well. Yeah, I would say that it really didn't click for me till maybe two years into investing. Hmm. Um, I, I really simplified my methodology and I think um, you know it, it, it worked out well. Just uh, you know, asset-wise, but it also worked out well mentally. I think for that. So a, a key takeaway, I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, with with our listeners out there, Jenny, is that you know, depending on every investor's, you know, where they're at in their investing arc, they're going to have different metrics, different needs, different returns, all that stuff. And you know, we're talking about how we kind of keep things very, very simple right now, and you know. We always want people to do their full due diligence mm-hmm. and be 100% comfortable with the property. 
And what I found to be a good balance, or you know, we found to be a really good balance with with clients and our investors is that hey, if a property looks good, you walk the property, you run the analysis, you know, you and your agent or you know, the client and us go walk, hey, we don't see any major red flags, get the property in your contract. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't you can do your full analysis or a much deeper analysis once it's in your contract. And again, that's because we have such a buyer-friendly contract out here in Colorado. And so it's like, hey, great, if it I call it a pass as a sniff test move forward with it. And then if, if in three days you realize numbers don't make sense or financing is different or inspection brings up other things and you can't renegotiate with a seller, great, kill the deal and you're done. But yep. if you try to do all this analysis up front while you're analyzing, that probably be under contract. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's a really good summary of, of how fast the market's moving now. Yeah. Yeah. So Jenny, this was awesome. So thanks for putting this together. Yeah, well, thanks for letting me uh, present it. Yeah, this this stuff is fun. All right, guys, so if you guys have any questions on here, obviously reach out to Jenny. I know you went through a lot of numbers and charts and graphs and spreadsheet screenshots, so all those will be in the blog post, which is in the show notes as well. So feel free to check those out. Have a great one, everyone.